Welcome bright and early in this uh, daylight saving time day. Uh, glad to see you all here this morning. Now, unbeknownst to you, what, what time is it right now? It's like, uh, what we got? 10.20. You know, the, the clock that normally guides my sermons is right there in the back. And you all can turn back there. You can kind of look. And, uh, oh. and you see that second hand move? Yeah, you know what that means. No restraints today. <laughs> none, none. All right, well, we, uh, as most of you know, we are uh, involved in the after school program, Kids Club. I asked one of the kids, any of you guys know what Kids Club stands for? Club? I asked one of the kids, and he just rattled it right off on Sunday. Anyone know what that stands for? Andy, what does it stand for? Yeah, kids learning to understand. That's like the best we could do to kind of make some kind of fun thing. And uh, you know, you all hear reports about about those things. I feel very privileged in being able to to deal with these kids who knew nothing, and yet now they know so much. They know the Ten Commandments. We're starting on the books of the Bible. They've memorized Psalm 121. They've been memorizing Psalm 103 with us, as many of us have been doing that in prayer meeting together. And we're going to center our service around that even next Sunday. Well, just um, Thursday... We finished reading this book, The Dangerous Journey. How many of you are familiar with this book? I hope that every hand really goes up in the air. If you're not familiar with this book, it's a book you should get. Uh, It's a book, parents, you should read to your children. It is a picture version of uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, we just read this book and the kids absolutely love this book. Um, it, It talks about Christian's difficult journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And, um, you know, rather than trying to show you all these pictures and you'll never see them anyway, what I did was I, I got a bunch of pictures here. Let's go to the next one. We're going to fly through this. This is Christian. What's he got on his back? A burden. And that represents what? His sin that's just weighing him down. And, next, next slide. He met this man. What's his name? Evangelist. And evangelist told him to go to the... The wicked gate, the small gate there. And so Christian took off. We can go to the next slide. And uh, who are these folks on the left? His wife and kids. And what are they saying? Come back. Don't go there. Stay here. And we got two guys running after him. What are their names? Just shout them out. Shout them out. We're going to... Obstinate and pliable. Good. And they talk with Christian and try to persuade him not to go. And um, obstinate won't hear anything that Christian says. And he goes back home. But pliable, being mendable, goes along with Christian, but unfortunately falls where? He falls into the... Next slide. Slew of despond. And uh, then what happens to pliable? He like stops his journey. He goes back home. Um, And then Christian gets helped out by a man named... Help, who helps him out. And then he encounters this man. His name is Mr. Worldly Wise Men, who tells Christian he should go to the town of morality where he'll meet a man named Legality and Civility. And they'll really direct him where to go. And here's what the town of morality looks like. It's a big mountain. You can see Christian right here, the small mountain. He's going to try to climb the Ten Commandments, getting to God by the way of the law. And that, that didn't work. And so he got rescued from that from evangelists. And these next guys, do you guys know who these are? I'd be impressed. Who? Simple sloth and presumption. And, and uh, Christian's trying to warn them. You can see Christian warning them, hey, there's danger coming. And they're like, it's okay, we'll be just fine. They couldn't wake them up from their slumber. But Christian just kept right on going. Uh, next slide here. And then what happened was he looked at the cross. His burden fell off his back, representing his sin fell off his back, fell into the tomb. And what's he got on now? New clothes, representing the righteousness of Christ. And he's given a scroll, which is his entrance ticket to the king to heaven, the celestial city. Okay, next one. Um, and here he is fighting someone. Fighting who? Yes. Apollyon. And what does he have? He's got the, the breastplate of righteousness. He's got the, the shield. He's proud with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He's got the sword of the Spirit. It's finally how he kills Apollyon. Next slide. And yet here he's walking through the... Valley of the shadow of death, difficulty on both sides, screams and moans on both sides. It's dark and it's just difficult. It's symbolizing just a a person walking through a very difficult and hard time. Next slide. 
Yep. And then he meets up with this guy. And uh, evangelism tells him he's going to go to this city. And the city's called Vanity Fair. And this other guy next to him, his name is Faithful. And he says, one of you is going to be going to die there in that city, but be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10. Okay, go on. Oh, that's a bad picture. But anyway, they are Christian and faithful are plugging their eyes and plugging their ears and not buying the things of the world, rather buying truth and selling it not. And it got them in trouble. So they are here in prison and they are, are caught and captured. Next slide. Faithful actually dies. He is burned at the stake and a chariot takes him up into heaven just like it did Elijah. And then he meets up with a new friend. What's his friend now? What's his name? Hopeful. And hopeful, and they encourage each other along the way, but they fall into some trouble. In fact, here, even, you've got Demas, right? And he's trying to tell them to go to the cave of filthy lucre. Like, go to the cave of riches. And they don't, but Demas goes up there and he falls in. And as they go on, they get caught by this guy. What's the giant's name? Giant Despair. And he lives in Doubting Castle. And they were stuck away there for several days, just pining away in their doubt and in their uncertainty until Christian realized that he had a key called Promise, which then he could unlock the door. And as he got out, Giant was chasing him, but when he saw the sun, he had one of his fits and couldn't catch him. And so Christian and Faithful continued on the hopeful, continued on the way. Next slide. And then even they met this man. This man is called Atheist. Good. And Atheist says, No, I've been searching around here for 20 years. I've never seen the celestial city. There is no celestial city. Just denying God and denying heaven. But Christian Hopeful pressed on and they had to go through the river of death. And just on the other side though is the Celestial City and Christian and Hopeful make it there. Is that a great story? Uh, I would encourage you. Uh, there shouldn't be more. There should be blank. Yeah, good. That should leave, we can leave right there for a while. I got another slide coming up in about like three hours when I finally get to it. We have um, we have today a treat. We're not going to read Pilgrim's Progress. This is like a shortened version of Pilgrim's Progress. I encourage you to read that book. If you don't have it, get it. Uh, this is, I think. They say, it's hard to say, but probably the, the second most book read other than the Bible in the history of the world. John Bunyan wrote it in prison. And it's a great story even to tell your kids, even to think upon the truths there. Just it talks about the Christian life. It's a difficult, agonizing life filled with temptations and difficulties all over the place. Well, today, as we come to Mark chapter 4, if you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles there. We are coming to a, a picture a little bit uh, about... Stories, illustration about what the kingdom of God is like. Here in Mark chapter 4, we see for the first time the, the teaching of Jesus in an extended way. Um, up until this point in time, Mark has emphasized the deeds of Jesus, right? Casting out demons, healing diseases, fevers, lepers, paralytics, withered hands. Mark has placed an emphasis here upon calling his disciples, but not so much upon teaching. Not that we haven't had teaching. I mean, Jesus has taught about how He can forgive sins and why He ate with sinners and why the disciples didn't fast and about the, the Sabbath and the nature of God's kingdom and the nature of Satan's kingdom. But those were responses to life's question. This is a time now when He really stood up on the pulpit and He taught in Mark chapter 4. He's carrying on a longer discourse, more of a prepared talk. If you have a red letter Bible, which doesn't matter, it's okay, but red letters often indicate the words of Jesus. Almost all of chapter 4 is red letters, indicating Jesus just talking here. He's not talking actually from a pulpit, but He's talking by the sea is what He's doing. And He's talking about the most important topic that Jesus talked about was the Kingdom of God. When Jesus began His ministry... Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And when Mark highlights the very first teaching of Jesus, here it is about the kingdom, how it starts, how it works, and how it grows. My message this morning thus is entitled, The Nature of the Kingdom of God, because that's what Jesus sets forth in these whatever, 34 verses that we have this morning. So we've got a lot to do. I'm glad I don't have any time constraints this morning. Uh, my first point comes from the verse 20 verses, and it's simply this. 
regarding the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of God, some see it and some don't. Some see it and some don't. Let's begin in verse 1. He began to teach them by the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee. This is his pulpit. And a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. You just picture it. You know, Jesus is in this boat, maybe rocking a little bit, but you know, maybe uh, it's got to be an acoustical thing. They're being out in the sea where this particular place may be, where the sound would travel, where it amplify his voice maybe, and be able to be heard by many, many people. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Parables are a bit like the story of the dangerous journey, the story of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, allegorical, if you will. Um, different things stand for different people. The burden stands for sin. Uh, the path stands for the, the way of righteousness. Going off the path stands for a different thing. The valley of the shadow of death refers to just a time of difficulty and trial. The slew of despond, time of depression. A hopeful and faithful, just encouraging friend. All this is kind of an allegory. It's kind of like what a parable is. We'll get into that a little bit more. But he was teaching them and saying to them in his teaching, verse 3, Listen to this. And by the way, as we read through here, I'm not going to point it out every time, but how often he says, listen, he was ears, let him hear. Take heed to what you listen to. You need to hear, you need to understand. Just over and over and over again. These are important for us. And he says, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell by the road and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen and it was scorched and because it had not root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He was an ear, let him hear. It's a, a very easy, simple illustration. Talking about a sower, how they sowed back then. I got some corn here, some burpee sweet corn. And uh, they didn't they didn't have little bags like this from Burpee, but what they did is they had a bag of corn here in their satchel that slung around them, and they would just grab the seed out of here, kind of as they walked along the way, probably walked up and down the field, and they took the seed, and you can, you can picture here if they just kind of scattered it along along the way, and even as I scattered a little bit of seed, you can eat that if you want, Stephanie, you can. Uh, it, some scattered, some well, some bounced way all, all over the place. Some went right where I threw it. They kind of bounced right up and down and, and landed there. And what they would do is they would scatter the seed across and then afterwards they'd take the rake and kind of rake it up and the seed then would kind of filter down and thus it would be sown. So it went up and down the, the field. Now, she throws the seed, it falls on different places. Some of it would fall along the path, right, right where the man was walking. Because it bounced maybe back on the path or maybe some dripped out of his satchel. We don't exactly know. But some would, would fall upon the path and the future of this seed wasn't good. It didn't become a plant. It became bird seed. Now, others fell upon the rocky ground. Maybe this is the ground along the side of the field which, which bordered the field. It had some bigger rocks so they can see where it was. And, and as it landed there... Uh, seed actually grew quite very quickly because it didn't have depth of soil. The, the roots couldn't go down. So if the plant's going to grow, it's going to grow up. And initially, maybe even the rocks shaded it, but once it gets up just a little bit outside of the rocks, the future wasn't good because the sun would scorch that plant and it would wither away. Other seed would fall among the thorns. That is, maybe ground that wasn't tilled or ground that wasn't kept very well. In this, the, the, the soil is certainly fertile and the, the plants grew up, but pretty soon the uh, the thorns would choke it out and its future wasn't very good either as it lacked the nutrients and the moisture that it needed because that all went to the thorns and it died away as well. But some of it fell in the good soil exactly where the, the sower wanted to put uh, the seed. Right there. And uh, that soft soil, unlike the hard ground. It is a deep soil unlike the rocky ground. It is a clear soil 
unlike the thorny ground. And the future for this seed is bright. All likelihood it will germinate and it will grow up and will multiply itself 30, maybe 60, even a hundredfold from one kernel of corn may becomes a hundred kernels of corn. That's all generalizations about the numbers. We're not getting into the numbers, but we're talking about just it, it, it produces much fruit from it. There's a story. It's the illustration. And those who heard that illustration for the first time would have understood it completely. They lived in an agrarian culture. They um, saw sowers apply their trade. Maybe some of them were sowers themselves. They were farmers. And they knew what Jesus was talking about. And for them, the illustration was a lot less problem even than it is for us because we think about big tractors going up and down the field. They think about people sowing. But we can understand it. I'm sure you understand it now almost as well as the original hearers understood it. But the meaning, on the other hand, that's a different story. Even as I told that story, filtering through your mind is the meaning of the parable. But I want you just to, just to stop and to think about what it would be to hear someone just explain that story. Just to tell that story and then leave. It would be kind of hard. A little bit like uh, the dreams that Pharaoh experienced or Nebuchadnezzar's. It's hard... Hard to understand those kind of dreams. But see, we, we're so ingrained with the meaning of this parable. But, but think about if you've never known it before. And then think about that's all that Jesus said and then left. That's what we see in verse 10. A change of scenery. As soon as He was alone. That was apart from the crowds. His followers, along with the twelve. So he has twelve disciples there. His followers, those who are believing in him. We don't know how big this crowd is, but it's smaller than the multitudes which he was preaching and, and talking to them. They began asking him about these parables. And here's what Jesus said about these parables. And we need to pause and reflect about parables in general before we look at the explanation, the interpretation, if you will, in verses 13 and following of this particular parable. Jesus said, to you, small group, insiders, it has been granted to be given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, those who are by the sea, get everything in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. We need to think about these verses because they are of utmost importance. They, they tell us the reason why Jesus spoke in parables. They tell us how parables are to be understood. They tell us why people don't understand the Word of God. And they open up for us the very nature of the Kingdom of God. In fact, I say this. If you don't understand verses 11 and 12, you don't understand any of the parables of Jesus. Because verse 11 and 12 give the reason why. They give a nature about how parables work. Now see, many people think that parables are like sermon illustrations. Now, when I preach, I often think about, you know, how can I take this truth and maybe illustrate it in a, in a certain way so that, it makes, so that it makes sense, so that people are helped with it, to illumine the truth, to make it, to make it seen and obvious. Maybe an object lesson, like the corn, catches the kids' attention, catches all our attention, like, like uh, pictures on the screen, like uh, funny stories from my family maybe, or some kind of allegory, or a story from history, or some kind of life experience that we have. I, I try to do these things to help explain God's Word, but that is sort of like a parable, but not, not quite. In fact, even in many ways, not quite at all, because parables aren't sermon illustrations. Parables are designed by God to do two things. First of all, they illumine the minds of the believing. So in that way, they are like sermon illustrations. But a second reason is they darken the minds of the unbelieving. And oftentimes, people just skip by that second purpose there and they just think, oh, the, the parables are just like stories to help make the truth alive. Well, they do, but they also hide truth as well. Parables actually then become a way of bringing judgment upon non-believers. Because 
It brings them to a certain level of knowledge and they understand, but yet they don't fully understand because they only understand partially. In fact, even while understanding partially, they actually don't understand. I mean, notice how we have the two groups there, right? You can see the insiders to you, verse 11, and you see the outsiders there in the end, but those who are outside. And notice that those who are on the inside know the mystery of the kingdom of God not because they're so smart, not because they're super intelligent or have gifts to do it, it's because it's a gift of God to understand. Look at what it says. To you, believers, church if you will, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. It's been given to us. It is a grace. And that's the picture of salvation. Salvation is all of grace. It is a gift to us. God has a present and He gives to us called the present of understanding. It's not that any of us were smart enough and said, oh, I know that I need to follow Jesus. And yes, I see my sin. I've got to follow Jesus. No. It's that God gives us this gift of conviction of sin. And And that gift then crushes our heart. And that gift then illumines the Gospel and so we see Jesus as everything we need. It's all a gift. The reason why anyone understands the Gospel or anyone understands the parables is because of a gift. He gives understanding to some. He gives understanding to those who believe. But there's this whole other group. Those outside, He gives only in parables. These are the ones who didn't believe in Jesus. These were the crowds who were following Jesus, but following Him only for what He could do for them. Looking out for their own interests. Really not, not embracing Jesus. Maybe, maybe doubtful, or maybe inquisitive, or maybe looking for some other reason. And, and God says, no, they don't get the explanation. They are left in the dark. And Jesus is very cognitive of this. He is very purposeful. Look at verse 12. I tell them only in parables, i.e. without the explanation, so that, here's why I'm giving it to them in parables, while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Catch that again. Everything in parables, so that while seeing they may not see, while hearing they may not hear and not understand. Otherwise, if they did hear, and if they did understand, they might return and be forgiven. See, Jesus spoke in parables to the unbelieving, not that they might understand and believe, but that they might understand and not fully understand and know and believe. That's what this passage is saying. It's exactly what Isaiah was called to do. If you look in verse 12, if you have any kind of study note or cross-reference, you can see there's a a note there to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. It's quoted from the Old Testament. It's a story of of Isaiah coming into the throne room of God and seeing God high and exalted, the train of His robe filling His temple, the seraphim around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And, and when, when Isaiah saw that, he crumbled because of his sin. He said, I am undone. One of the seraphim took a coal, touched the lip of his mouth, and said, you are cleansed. You're free. And then God, the, the one on the throne, says, who will go for us? And, and Isaiah says, I will go. Send me. And then God says, okay, you can go. Here's what he says. You get up and you go tell Israel. Keep telling this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Same exact thing Jesus is quoting here. In other words, Isaiah is going to go and preach repentance. He's going to try to do everything that he can to persuade them, um, as he did uh, Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, I will make them like wool. He's he's persuading them, calling them back. He said, you're like people who built a vineyard and yet yet you've rejected it. God has built this vineyard for you and you rejected it. You've, You've gone astray. And over and over again, Isaiah is talking about a plea to come back. 
And yet again, they reject it and reject it and reject it. And basically, God says, when you go to preach, yes, thank you for your volunteering. You go preach and have a fruitless ministry. That was the call of Isaiah. And it was like divine design that's going to be a fruitless ministry. It wasn't, you go out there and try as hard as you can. I know they're not going to be there. He says, no, no, no. You go out and speak it clearly and I'm going to harden hearts. I'm going to cover so they don't see and believe. It's like the judgment had already passed. It was already determined. And though he pleaded, and though, though he begged for them to come to Christ, they didn't. They didn't at all. They didn't turn. They didn't understand. He had a fruitless ministry. In fact, even it says in Isaiah, Isaiah knew full well what God was calling him to do. He says, how long do I got to do that? And God says, don't worry, there's going to be a remnant. So, God wasn't going to encourage Isaiah that even in his preaching, there's going to be a few. But vast majority of people are going to hear you. They're going to like hearing you. And how often people like to hear spectacles of preachers. Ben Franklin used to love listening to George Whitfield preach. He didn't believe a lick of it. And there are many preachers who people love listening to them, though they don't believe anything they say. But they just like having their religious show. And that's what was happening in Isaiah's day. It's happening in Jesus' day. People liked the excitement, liked something happening, but they fundamentally didn't believe. And so they only got parables. Unless you think this is just like a minor plot in the Gospels and in the Bible, think again. This phrase right here from Isaiah 6, verse 9, first of all, happened in Isaiah's day, quoted in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John, and in Acts. This whole concept of hearing and seeing and not seeing and not hearing and not understanding. It's the reality of the kingdom of God. You either hear the message of Christ crucified for your sins and understand it and love it and embrace it, or you hear about this man who died upon a cross and it doesn't make any sense at all. Right? You, you hear the facts, but the feeling in the heart and the passion in the soul is not there. There's no effect upon your soul. That's how the kingdom of God works. So as I've said, some see it and some don't. That's what we're talking about here. And that's how Jesus explains the parable. That some see it and some don't. He said in verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all of the parables? Right here. We're confronted with the importance of this parable. For some reason, this parable, how some see it and some don't, is unlike all of the other parables in that this is the one that unlocks them all. You don't understand this one about the, the sower and the seed? Jesus said, how will you understand all the parables? Something like this. Like, like I don't understand addition and subtraction. If you don't understand addition and subtraction, how are you going to understand algebra? You're not going to understand it. Or you say, I don't understand the letters. I don't understand what sounds it makes. Well, how then are you going to understand the words? You can't eat. This is how foundational this parable is. If you don't understand this parable, you can't understand any of the parables. So important. We're going to spend a bunch of our time just right here on this parable. And then we'll hit my last three points fairly quickly. Because really the importance of this parable. Verse 14. Here he is. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road when the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others, the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. Alright, it's a parable, right? It's an allegory. The sower sows the word. The seed is like the word of God. It's sown in multiplicity of, of different ways. Tracks, books, sermons, conversations, printed material, illustrated material, whatever. The, the Word is sown out there and the soils are like the souls of men. Okay, It's really tricky here. Soils, S-O-I-L-S, 
Souls, S-O-U-L-S. You just kind of change one letter and the soils became, become souls. So it kind of, kind of works out nice for us in the English. But that's what it, what it means. Some souls are like the hard path. They hear the Word of God, makes no penetration into their heart and mind. It's as though they haven't even seen it or heard it. Right? I know many people like this. I've spoken with many who I talk with about Jesus or I talk with about God and stone-faced, nothing. Like, okay. Um, haven't really done this, but if you talk to someone and then you see them the next day, oh yeah, remember what we were talking about? What were we talking about? It just like makes no, makes, makes no connection at all. Even recently, I had the opportunity to speak with someone about Christ. All I got was profanity back to me. Something was happening, but it just doesn't, wasn't going on there. And it, it makes sense because whenever this happens, know that demonic activity is happening. Because it says, even Jesus said, that Satan takes, takes the seed away. Right? Satan comes and takes away the Word which has been sown in them. So if someone doesn't understand, just know that spiritual warfare is taking place there. That Satan is actively taking the Word away if they don't understand. That's the hard path. Some souls, though, are like the rocky soil. They hear the Word of God and they like it. They hear its message. And the results, I think, are going to come out of it. And they, 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 they want to change their lives. And yes, they want this. And they like it. And they, they receive it, as it says, with joy. Verse 16. They hear the Word immediately. They receive it with joy. They, they are happy. And yet, then, something happens along the way. Some kind of tribulation or some kind of hardship or some kind of pressure or some kind of expectation that they weren't expecting this to be hard. They thought it was going to be smooth and easy. This is particularly dangerous with those who promise health, wealth, and prosperity. Right? They're going to promise something easy and then people believe in that and then when it gets hard, they're like, oh, I didn't want that. But even when you preach a hard gospel and say that the Christian life is like this, 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 this narrow path that, that goes straight on ahead and you've got lions coming from both sides, but you just walk straight on ahead. You've got demons firing their fiery darts at you, but you just, you just keep working on ahead and you just keep pressing on with all these dangers. And you may be in prison, you may face trials and temptations, but the Christian life is a, is a hard walk, straight way, straight to heaven. Don't go this way like formalists did or go, don't go that way like hypocrisy did. But you just go straightway. Even when it's the gospel is presented like that, it is um, oftentimes received with joy because they see the celestial city. In fact, the classic illustration of this: uh, if you think about the hard path, that's obstinate, right? He just said, "No, I don't want anything to do with that." Went back to the city of destruction. But pliable is on the rocky soil. Because he heard it and said, hey, this is really fun. This is really nice. This is great. And in fact, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, there's a great discourse there between the time when obstinate leaves and pliable and Christian are talking there before they hit the slough of the spawn. Uh, pliable says, now, tell me, Christian, these wonderful things that we're going to. Tell me of, of the great things that we can anticipate. And Christian says, well, my mind can think them better than my tongue can say. And Bunyan then just puts off the glories of the streets of gold and, and the magnificence of the celestial city. And, and Pliable is really excited about that until they hit trouble. And when persecution came, depression came, Pliable was out of town. Now, I know people like this. Hear the Word, are excited about it. Soon though, with the difficulties that come in life, they're back to living their old way. What was promising at one point, the fact they didn't continue on, the fact that difficulties overcame them demonstrated that they're just shallow soil. They're not the real deal. Uh, in fact, I, I think even particularly, I've had sometimes, you know, over the course of our ministry, I, I think of about three guys, particularly, I can see their face. Uh, some guys, I just know their first name. Sometimes I even forgot their names. But, but they come in, and they come into Rock Valley Bible Church, and they're so excited about the things happening here. And, Pastor, you just preach the Word, and that's so good. And they're like patting me on the back and even asking me about books and kind of buying some books to read and kind of directing them on the path. And then, whoop, they're gone. Try to call them, nothing. Who knows? I had several guys like that. People come to church, invite their friends even, and then just a few weeks later, they're just difficulty, persecution arising there. They're not liking it anymore. It's rocky soil. Well, some soils are like thorny soils. 
They hear the Word, embrace what it says. And yet, I think in some sense, they get choked out. There's so many other things going on around them that they don't have any nutrients in the Word of God. All the nutrients are getting sucked away into this or into that or into this other thing. And it could be material circumstances, could be um, material things, could be a job change, could be things of life that distract them, I think, from the main thing and Christ then takes second fiddle. I, I know lots of people like this. People who spent lots of years in church. They know about the Word. They know a lot about the Bible. Yet when it comes down to it, they're not sold out to Christ. Then they come to church consistently, but they have so many more important things about them. Maybe children's opportunities. Right? They've got to get their kids to soccer on Sundays so they, they can go and be involved in their soccer. They'll, they'll come back to God later. Or uh, maybe they overwork themselves because they've got to pay tuition for their kids to get into school and so they work so much that they're so fatigued they can't get to church on Sunday and they can't read their Bibles and there's no interest in that. Or it's their boats, or their investments, or their vacation home, it's their fishing, it's their hobby. Something, just all this stuff comes around and, and eventually, basically, they're unfruitful. They are so interested in the other things. And his, the worries of the world, the, the desire for riches comes in and just chokes it out. And I think that is the case, the curse of American Christianity. So much worldly stuff. The people pursue the worldly stuff to the exclusion of Christ. I don't have time for that. i got time for all this other stuff. But I don't have time for Jesus. It just chokes them out. And then, there's the good soil. There's the ones who've heard the Word, embraced the Word, believed it, love it, bringing forth fruit, some 30, 60, 100-fold. In context here, that's certainly talking about reproducing yourselves, other believers, evangelism coming. I think you can apply it well to fruit in our lives, fruit in our children, bringing forth fruit, encouraging fruit in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know lots of people like this, and many of them are sitting right before me. I'm talking to you. They just love God's Word. They just love listening to it. They just love hearing it. They want nothing more than to soak in the glories of the Gospel and to learn it more deeply. They might know God more fully. They might walk on that, that precious, narrow path to get to the celestial city. There are many people like that. I just want to encourage you in that path. When you see fruit in your life, be encouraged by that. Because one of the things that really we need to do is we really need to test our souls. And that, that's what this parable is screaming us to do. It's not just say, okay, these are like the kind of people that are out there. Some get it and some don't. Yes, that's good. You need to know that about the kingdom of heaven. Is that some, will, some will get it and some won't. But my question is to you, do you get it? Or not? Because only one of these soils is a good soil. There are three bad soils. The rocky soil is a bad soil. It withers away. The thorny soil is a bad soil. So it just gets choked up. Choked away. And it will die. There's only one good soil. So what kind of soil do you have? You know, we can test our soils... You know, I, I read this week about how you test soils. If you just go out to your garden, you take some soil and you you kind of kind of put it in your arm, put it in your hands like that. You kind of kind of pack it down like that and and uh, open it up. And uh, if it keeps its shape and you kind of can poke on it and it still keeps its shape, you got a soil of clay. It's not so good. Or or if you if you open it up and it uh, kind of falls, you got too sandy soil. But what you want is you want that soil that you can pack in your hand and it stays put like that and then you put it and as soon as you kind of put some pressure on it, it just all crumbles. It's called loamy soil. It's what you want. We can test the drainage of our soil. You can dig a, a little hole in your garden. You know, Maybe about a, a foot thick, a foot deep, maybe about a, a foot around and fill it with some water, let it go down and then fill some water and start timing it and seeing how quickly it goes. You want it to go down. If it doesn't go down you got some clay soil there and that's really bad because you're going to just drown the roots of your trees or your roots of your, your plants. If you got sandy soil, it's just going to go woo, just right on down and that's no good either because you got to keep your moisture there. But if you got loamy soil, it's going to go down and go down slowly as it just seeks deep in. That's, that's good soil. You can search for earthworms. Earthworms. Am I right on this, Dirk? I'm okay. Alright, you know what? 
If you see earthworms, I just know this. How about you do the earthworm test? If you look at your earthworms, you got organic nutrients there in your soil and you're doing, you're doing pretty good. pH, you can test the soil. pH, local nursery, I think you probably buy a pH kit. Alright, I don't know very much about soils, but, but I do know about souls, alright? I know that with souls, you can test them. And what you do is you test them as you see the, the fruit or what, what's happening in your souls. And so I just ask you, do you have a hard soul? Are you disinterested in the things of God? Are you here on Sunday morning out of compulsion? Are you thinking really religion is a waste of time? You may have a hard soul. I would call you repent. It's interesting, at, at, at Kids Club where we're learning Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is a call to every believer. It's a call to everyone in the universe, actually, to shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. And one of the ways I got this across this Thursday uh, to the kids, I just said, you guys ever watched a sporting event where your team is scoring a touchdown? And what happens? Everyone's on the, everyone's on the, the bench. And then, and, and then it's going, yeah! Woo! Right? Okay, let's try that. All right, let's pretend a touchdown's being scored. All right? I'm serious. All right? This is what shouting joyfully is. Okay? I'm Denver. I got back. Tim Tebow's throwing the ball. Okay, here I got, I'm scoring a touchdown. Here we go! That's what God calls us to do in worship of Him, is to shout joyfully to Him. Hard soils won't do that. Hard souls don't see the joy and excitement in that. What about rocky soil? Are you shallow in your faith? Do you have much depth of soil or are you just, you're just shallow? Only worshiping God in the good times. But when the bad times come, you don't want anything to do with God. That's a rocky soil. I'd call you to be like Job, who when he faced the difficult challenges, had such a deep-rooted faith that he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In good times and bad, every blessing you pour out, the song says, right, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, that's a deep soil, but, but the rocky soil, just let it pass. And just, only when it's good. I know people who come only when it's good. The thorny soil. Do you have so many interests that have distracted you that you end up being lukewarm because you've got so much other stuff going on that your time for Christ, the time to treasure God is really minimal. It doesn't work in a marriage. It doesn't work with Jesus. Are you living for the world and for its pleasures? First John 2. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's the thorny soil. Or you good soil. Do you love the Word of God? Is it refreshment to your soul? Do you see fruit in your life? Do you treasure Jesus? Above all things. Can you say with Asaph in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you there is nothing on earth I desire. That's the good soul. It's one of the most important things you'll ever know about yourself is what kind of soul you may have. I may mess up the soil test. I haven't messed up the soul test. All right. That's my first point. Some see it, some don't. Let's press on to my second point. We're going to go through these fairly quickly because Jesus did. They're not quite as important as His first parable and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. We'll think about Christ once again. Alright, here is the Kingdom of God. Here's the second principle. With knowledge comes responsibility. With knowledge comes responsibility. Verse 21, And He was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And 
more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Alright, now this, by the way, is the most difficult portion in all this chapter. Not because it's so hard in itself to understand uh, just what this light is talking about or what this standard of measure is talking about, but, but more with the flow of, of how does this fit. I mean, we're going to see afterwards two more parables of seeds and sowing. And, and that's what happened before. And all of a sudden here we don't have seeds and sowing. And one commentator said this, the connection between verse 21 and preceding is not clear. This holds also for the relation between the preceding verses of the new paragraph. This does not mean that the sayings are grouped artificially, but though an attempt will be made to show intercoherence, as the commentator will do later, he says, it must be admitted at the very outset that certainty in such matters is unobtainable. That just let me off the hook about how to explain. I'm going to try and give the old college try, but it's taking a lot of responsibility off me if these smart commentators can't even figure out exactly how it fits together. All right? But we know what it says. It's just how does it fit with all these seed parables? I'm not exactly sure. I've just put it like this. With knowledge comes responsibility because I think that's the point. He's saying, hey, if you know, if you know these kingdom parables, you know how the kingdom works, if you know that some get in it, some don't, you've got to do something with that. Don't just sit on the shelf and not do anything, but the more you know, the more you're responsible for. The illustration of verse 21 is simple. It's just simple about a light. Right? You don't light a light and cover it up, right? We got a light here, right? Kids have seen these LED lights. Now imagine myself in a dark room, right? I'm downstairs in the basement because the power is out and I'm looking for the control panel so as to be able to flip the switch. Now I'm going like this, right? Do I go like this? That'd be pretty foolish, right? It's the whole point here. You take a lamp, you put it up so it can shine light. You have a flashlight, a torch, you're going to use it to shine the light. You're not going to cover it over with your bed or with a, a measure or something like that. It's just no good. That's what it's, he's saying. When something is, is hidden in dark, it, it, it's come so that the light would come and shine upon it. So the point is here, verse 24. Talking about the, the measure. To him much is given, much will be required. And if you're given little, little is required. But what you have, you need to use. If you don't use it, it'll be taken away from you. I think that's what's being talked about here in 24 and 25. And, and so let's just connect this to the, to the kingdom of God. We have responsibility to shine our light. And to the extent that you've been given knowledge, you've given understanding, greater is your responsibility. The kingdom of God is not to be hidden, but it is to be proclaimed. The kingdom of God is about light coming into the world to rescue those who are in darkness. And we got the light. We ought to shine that light. Responsibility to do so. If you don't, verse 22 brings a warning. It will still shine anyway, rather, verse 22. Anything that's hidden will be revealed. God will, in His sovereignty, shine that light. But in verse 24... 25, if you don't shine that light, whoever has, if you have that light and you shine it, more will be given to you. You'll get more light. You get more light. And, and, and here's how it works. If you share your faith with a non-believer, somehow you get more faith. Is, is that true? Right? When you, you go out and you challenge yourself. I mean, think about Alyssa Krauss going out to Germany just to share the gospel with college students there. She's just stretching herself and she'll come back with more faith. But if you don't exercise that faith muscle, what happens? even what you have will be taken away from you. And there's the warning that if you don't shine your light, God's going to take away your, your Dorsey Magnite, Maglite. He's going to take it away. Responsibility to shine it. So I just say, are you talking with others about the Kingdom of God? Are you talking with others about the glory of Christ? Are you letting your light of your, the Gospel shine in your life? Now, maybe here this morning you say, you know what, Steve, I don't, I don't know very much about the Bible. I don't know as much as you do. Well, you know what, that's okay. We've all been given different measures. You may have a little measure. You may have a lot measure. Wherever you are, whatever you have, you're called to share. And I don't care where you are, you're called to share. You're called to let that light shine. See, God doesn't expect us all to have this you know, PhD level of the Bible understanding all of us. But He does expect what you have, use. 
He doesn't want you to bury your talent in the ground. He wants you to invest it and use it and multiply it. God takes no delight. People take what they've been given and just hoard it and hide it themselves. God, the kingdom is such that it needs to be shared. It needs to get out. And God's very pleased with a child who learns the Ten Commandments at Kids Club that's all the child knows and shares it with a parent. Way more than he is about the man who reads the Bible every morning yet never makes Jesus Christ known at work. Well, there's a promise and a threat. The promise, if you're faithful to what God has given you, you'll be given more. The threat is if you're not faithful, God will take away what you have. So I just encourage you to increase your account. Just shine it forth. Shine it out. With lots of different ways. Right? Tom is organizing a, uh, I don't know what you call it, something at Wrigley Field. I'm going to join you with that. Passing out tracks opening day. It's a great time last time. Got to stretch your faith if you can come. Ben, that'd be a great time for you. Ladies, you can come too, I guess. Uh, other times, you know, just work. To be able to, to do that. Maybe, maybe you've got friends, maybe you've got neighbors. Just work at shining your light. Shine your light for your kids. Don't hide the good news you've been given. Let it go. Alright, my third point here. The nature of the kingdom of God. Some get it, so don't. don't. Um, with much comes more greater responsibility. Thirdly, we don't understand its growth. I love this story. The kingdom of God, verse 26, is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he, he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. He doesn't know. how. This is a farmer. The farmer doesn't know. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces the crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here's a great picture of farmering in Bible times. Cast a seed upon the soil. At that point, he goes to bed. And then, you know, he didn't live in the days of pesticides. He didn't do there. Maybe he doesn't do a lot of tilling. He just plants it. Goes away. Comes back. And there it is. Sprouts. They, they, they grow up. Every year they grow up. How? He doesn't really exactly know. But slowly and surely, they do. Right? The blade first and the ear. Then the mature grain comes. And the harvest comes. He just takes away. So he plants the seed, goes away, somehow it grows, and he just harvests it in. You can take that. That's how the kingdom of God works. All we do is scatter the seed upon the soil. We scatter the Word on the souls of men. And we just let the Word of God be known to the souls of men. We cannot make the seed grow in people. We don't know how the Word of God grows in people. We just have seen it over and over and over again. And we trust in that. And when it's grown, we go out and reap the harvest. Think about it. The implications are huge. Our responsibility, our job, is to sow the seed and go to sleep. That's what we need to do. Sow the seed and go to sleep. God is the one who grows the plants. It's not our job. It's no accident. This is the same picture that Jesus gives in the first parable. Just the, the sower just simply scattering the seed and some fall in fertile places and others, maybe the majority, on bad places. Right? But depending upon how the Word of God is, if the, the soul is good, it will grow. How? We don't know. And we need to certainly teach and encourage and, and help and foster growth wherever we can, but we don't, we don't know how it is that God's Word stirs our heart and soul. We know that the Word of God is living and active and powerful. It convicts, reproves. And it, it, it makes wise the simple. It, it's perfect and it's sweeter than honey, but we don't, we don't really know how that is. We just know that it is. It's got to cause the growth. This is Paul's point. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5-9. What's Apollos? What's Paul? We are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither he who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are 
God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. Some prepare the soil, some plant the seed, some water the crop, some weed the field. But in the end, it's God who causes the growth. If you believe any differently than that, you'll drive yourself crazy. Thinking like, oh, I wish I'd have said that right thing to them when I showed that word. Or, oh, if only I'd have done this, it would have made an impact on the kingdom of heaven. No, no, no. You just put the word out there and you say, God, do your work. And you trust that God will be faithful to do His work. Psalm 127, verse 2. He gives to His beloved even in His sleep. You know, God, at sometimes in church history, um, will grow His kingdom in His way. I mean, He always grows His kingdom in His way, but sometimes it's fast. Sometimes revival breaks out. It's with the fever heat of summer. People are growing in Christ. The Word is going out. They're believing it. They're embracing it. The days of the, the Great Awakenings. The time of America. The time of the early church. Right? Great Awakening. And then in other times, God will bring a famine for the Word of God. Like Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And God builds His kingdom in His way with His timing. He, we just need to be planting that seed. God brings the famine or He brings the rain or He brings the good souls or the bad souls. Alright, let's go to my final point as we transition to the Lord's Supper here. Finally, the nature of the kingdom. Some will see it, some don't. With knowledge comes responsibility. We don't understand its growth, but verse four, uh, fourth point, it will grow. 30 and 31. How shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest in its shade. Picture here is clear. I got some mustard seed here. Yellow, yellow mustard seed. And uh, if you, you look at that, I expose afterwards, kids, if you want to taste this, you can taste this afterwards. That'd be just fine with me. Uh, but these, these, these puppies are pretty small. In fact, I think if I scattered a few of these, um, we'd have to wait for the vacuum to clean them up. Steffi, you couldn't quite get them. Uh, they're small boogers. Now, I don't think Jesus was making a biological statement here because even this is one of the spices. There may have been other spices, to tell you, of, of his that were even smaller than this. But what he's saying is, look look at how small this is. Look at how big then the mustard seed grows. You guys know how big a mustard plant grows? Any of you guys have that in your garden? Well, it's kind of like a tree. It's like a small tree. Does mustard even grow around here? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's got to be an arid climate or something. But here's, I got a picture here for you of uh, mustard seed, kind of how it it grows. There it goes. It's kind of tall for this little, little seed. Grows way tall, eight to ten feet tall. I'm sure that some, some could get even a lot taller. But there's a there's a mustard seed. There's what it what it looks like. And Jesus is pointing out how the kingdom of God can start from very humble beginnings, and then can progress so big that even the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Let me just give a few illustrations of this, and and then we'll we'll press on. I, I think. One illustration that's my favorite is the issue of Charles Spurgeon. He grew up in the home of a, of a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. His great-grandfather was a pastor. I think his great-great-grandfather was a pastor. Line of pastors. And, but his, pastor was, his dad was pastoring this teeny church. Uh, in fact, so much so that they didn't have enough money to support their child. So they sent Charles away to be with his grandfather. And so that's where he spent most of his days growing up with his grandpa because his dad was too poor really to, to help him. And, and Charles was a, a pretty rebellious boy when he was young. But he was a churchgoer because his dad was a pastor. But Spurgeon, on, on a snowy night, was, was trying to go to a place of worship, but it was too snowy to get there. This is back when he was walking. If it was too snowy, he was walking. It's kind of hard. And so he ducked into this primitive Methodist chapel and attended a worship service there. The crowd there was small that night because the, the snow was coming down so hard. The preacher who scheduled to preach didn't show up. He was probably just like Charles Spurgeon. He was probably in the church where Charles was going, and maybe Charles was, was here. But anyway, a lay guy stood up, stood up, 
had a totally unprepared message, Isaiah 45:22. Look unto me and be ye shaved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no other. And uh, in this little, this little chapel, Yvonne and I had a chance to be there about what, 12 years ago, whenever we were there. This little tiny chapel, you know, maybe, you know, maybe about half the size of our, of our church here. And uh, Spurgeon was sitting right over there to the right, right where Tom Wetech is, because there's a big plaque on the wall where it is. And, and Spurgeon described this man who preached this sermon as a really stupid man, who was a tall, thin man who spoke with a feeble voice. He didn't even pronounce his words rightly. And yet he said, look unto me and be saved. And, and Spurgeon even, I don't have that manuscript with me, but he talked about how all he said, he, like, he, said, he read the text and he was out of sermon material. And so he said, just look, look, look. It doesn't mean to walk. It doesn't mean to talk. It just means to look. Look and be ye saved. And just kind of goes on and on and on about all the guy was preaching about. He said, a feeble, feeble sermon. But that night, God saved Charles Spurgeon. And he went on to be the instrument of God's blessing to the world. I believe more prolific than any writer ever has been on the planet. Because he would speak his sermons on Sunday morning. They'd be produced into books. And even, it's something like, 1917, I think it was 25 years after he died, his sermons were still coming out once a week because he had such a backlog of stuff. They just kind of kept coming and coming and coming and coming. Books, he wrote a lot of books, gave a lot of talks, and just amazing. But it came out of a poor pastor's son who got derailed into this small church meeting. And nobody knows even who the preacher was. And yet from a small beginning that the kingdom through the Metropolitan Tabernacle downtown London just exploded. Worldwide blessing. Uh, another illustration might be the country of Nepal. I'll be real quick. In 1950, there were like a handful of believers in Nepal. It was illegal for foreigners to travel into Nepal. This was like 60 years ago. The only way the gospel came to Nepal is if Nepalese left, got converted, and came back as missionaries. And indeed, that's what happened about 1950. Or so, and they had the, the, the total number of Christians they knew in the country were like 10 to 20. They had, that's all that there were. And yet today, 60 years later, numbering 400,000 Christians and growing. Small beginning in just a generation and a half. 400,000. Phenomenal growth. Perhaps though, the greatest example of the growth in the church comes out of the disciples themselves. There are only 12 of them, yet 11. Because one forsook them. And even some of those were doubting. Fearful. Scared. And yet, even after Jesus rose from the dead, He had 120. Even appeared to 500. But soon afterwards, there were 3,000 that believed the day of Pentecost. Soon there were 5,000. And so much so that little beginnings of those 11 men propagated that the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire in a matter of three centuries. So Christianized became the Roman Empire that the name of Christ was officially taken on the whole empire. But I think perhaps even the greatest illustration, just a small thing that really grew large, was the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a good transition to the Lord's Supper. Because you think about when Jesus died, He died as an obscure Jew an obscure death with a few criminals on either side. There was no great fanfare. Criminals died all the time. Crucifixion was commonplace back then. And he was crucified on this beam, this cross. You know, and, and Jesus, I mean the whole the whole the whole geographic place of it, who knows, maybe it's the size of the stage on a hill outside of Jerusalem, which back then wasn't such a big place. I mean, it's a, big, it's a big place worldwide because of what Jesus did. But many thousands of years ago, just that one little act, and, and what has happened? The church has happened. Untold millions of people come to faith in Christ around the world. From thousands of miles away, thousands of years later, still that one little small incident of a mustard seed expanded and grew to where we are even here today. We think upon the sacrifice of Jesus.
Now, much more was going on at the cross than we saw. Okay? We, we could say, yeah, just one man was dying there upon the cross, where in reality it was God's wrath being poured out for all time upon those who would believe. It's a lot of wrath coming up with it. But, but that was like all behind the scenes, and we couldn't, couldn't really see what was going on. Earthly speaking, it was very small. And I would say this, is that oftentimes in those small beginnings when Charles Spurgeon was saved that night, a lot more was going on than we knew was going on. When those believers in Nepal gathered, and that's where they get there are only 20 of us, a lot more was going on than just 20 people together. Because God's way, God knew behind that. But we don't see, we don't see the crest of the wave coming behind some of these little things. But that certainly was the case with the kingdom of God. There was so much happening behind the scenes that it's taken a whole book to write about it. And even there, uh, is not exhausted everything that could be told about the sacrifice of Christ. And that's really what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the fact that Jesus became man to die for our sins so we might be reconciled to God as Jesus took our punishment for the sins that we deserve upon the cross. And so we're for the next four weeks, we are going to celebrate the supper every, every Sunday. Just again, coming back to Jesus, coming back to His sacrifice upon the cross. And I, I just pray that we would we celebrate in such a refreshing way again. As we examine our souls, how appropriate this message is, celebrating the supper, right? Examining our souls to see where we are. I just encourage you to repent. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Find Him more precious than anything. Okay, let's bow our heads and pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we prepare once again to celebrate Your Supper. The Supper You told us to do. You told us to do this in remembrance of You. I pray this would be a delightful time as we sing songs, focus around the cross, stir our hearts in love and joy at the redemption of Jesus. God, let us worship You in this special time. You are adored and magnified. In Jesus' name, Amen.